Hey, this is Robbie Baseball from the Dingers Fantasy Baseball Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 163, Raging Bull Movie Review. Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek, we usually open the show, you know, by sharing anything new that we've experienced in pop culture. So uh, let's get started. First of all, how are you? And then what's new in pop culture in your world? Hey, Chris, uh, I am well, as usual. Thanks for asking. Uh, New in my world? Well, wouldn't be a week on Pop Goes Your World if Derek didn't have a documentary review to oh, share nice. with the listeners. Nice. So, uh, the the documentary that I had a chance to watch this week is called President in Waiting. It's about the vice presidents in the United States, and it's on. Uh, it's a CNN film, so it was on CNN, and I'm sure they'll run it again. And it was fabulous. Whether you are into politics or not, whether you are a Democrat, a Republican, or an independent, it doesn't matter. This this isn't so much about politics as much as it's about the office of the vice president and how Walter Mondale was the first vice president to essentially make that job a, a, um, a job that someone would want to do. Prior to uh, Carter becoming president, all the previous presidents before that had picked vice presidents that would help them win an election and then not given the vice president anything to do. And and all the interviews with vice presidents after the fact, they all said they hated the job. They wouldn't wish it on their worst enemy. They would never take it again. But when President Carter came in, he lacked a certain amount of experience. And so he needed a, a vice president who had a tremendous amount of political experience. And when Mondale came in, he basically wrote out a document and said, you know, Mr. President, these are the things I think as the vice president I need to be able to do. And President Carter was uh, was smart enough to realize that this is a good idea. Why have one person carry all that that pressure and stress and burden when you've got a, a perfectly capable number two there who's willing and able to to help? And every vice president since then has referred to this vice presidential document that uh, Mondale created. And that has essentially become the job description of every vice president that served since then. And this 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 documentary has interviews with every living president and vice president, uh, with the exception of President Trump, because obviously they they filmed it in the last year or two. And, and, you know, he's a man on top. He's busy. He can't be doing doing uh, documentaries. But they do interview Vice President um, Pence. Uh, so it obviously is is fairly recent. And it again, it's a fantastic look at this interesting component of American government that I think a lot of people don't really have a clear understanding of. And even as as a non-American, as someone looking in from the outside, it was it was fascinating. So, I, I mean, I Chris, I think you would really enjoy it. And mm-hmm. I think that anyone who is even moderately interested in, in how the, the highest office in America works, it's absolutely worth your 90 minutes or so. 
Very good. I'm really glad that you mentioned a documentary again this week, and we're going to come back to that in just one second. But before we do, I do want to give a little bit of a shout out. We have a big celebration around Pop Goes Your World this week. And even though he's not with us, we did want to give a big shout out and say happy birthday to the one and only Yancey Eaton. Happy birthday, Yancey. Still, you know, a year older, but he's still, you know, this young millennial. Yeah, I was, but, I was just going to say, he said he's no longer with us. I want to make it clear. He didn't die. He's just not a part of the show on a regular basis anymore. Thank you for so, clarifying that. Uh, yes. Yancy, happy birthday. Yes, Yancy, happy birthday. You're still alive, and we're so glad for that, my friend. Uh, so you mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned the documentary, because almost every week here at the top of the show, you mention a new documentary that you've watched. You know, you tell us a little bit about it. And then the last episode, last week, no documentary. And our good buddy Luke Martin mentioned to me on Twitter that it felt a little empty at the top of the show with no new Derek documentary. So sort of in the spirit of cooperation, I, I watched a documentary this past week and I thought oh, I'd, yeah? I'd, share, I thought I'd share it. It was on Netflix and it's called The Social Dilemma. Have you seen it or have you mentioned it oh, here on the show? It, it's on my watch list. I have not watched it yet, but I, I know about it. And it is uh, it is on my watch list. I will definitely be watching it at some point in the not too distant future. So how was it? Tell me I, about it. It was good. I'll try not to give away too much, but it's say, essentially... Try not to spoil it too much, but I, I do have a yeah. sense of what it's about. Yeah, so you know, like it's essentially about um, how your social media feed influences your opinions. Um, especially in regard to how the social media algorithms are designed to basically just keep feeding you content, you know, that's most likely to get some kind of engagement from you. Like they determine it by, you know, what you click on or what you like or what you comment on. And the problem becomes that you just keep getting inundated with similar material and it becomes a problem because it creates these bubbles where people only get information and content that they agree with. And they basically get no exposure to anything that they disagree with. And the ensuing result from that is this increasingly polarized society. And it becomes magnified when you're dealing with people that believe, you know, the world is flat, you know, or, you know, research is, you know, watching two YouTube videos from some guy in his parents' basement or something. And it basically creates this sort of ongoing spiral of misinformation. It's very fascinating. And I don't, to be honest, it was a little bit scary too. You know, some of the insiders that are interviewed for the documentary, they believe this could even lead to civil war in the United States because, you know, you're going to say, yeah. Yeah, no, I was, I was going to say, um, uh, I mean, it, it's, you were going to talk about a civil war, which is obviously a little more important than what I was mm-hmm. going to jump in with. But to your point, I, I have noticed this over like I'm a, I'm a big user of Facebook and I've noticed over the last few years exactly what you're saying. I tend to see the same kinds of articles, the same kind of posts from the same kind of people. I get the same kind of advertisements. And it occurred to me that, I, you know, I might have. I'm going to pick a number. Let's say it was 500 friends on Facebook, but I was only seeing posts from maybe 10 or 20 of them on any sort of a regular basis. And so I actually have made a point every few months I go through Facebook and I I pick 10 or 20 random people that I don't think I've heard from recently. And I look at their feed. And if I don't think that it's anything I really care about, or if it's a person I don't really socialize with anymore, I'll, I'll remove them from my, my list. And I find that is almost like rebooting the algorithm where they realize, Oh, you're not friends with these 10 or 12 people anymore. We have to do a small tweet 
tweak to your algorithm. And suddenly I've started to see different posts from people who I'm already friends with, but was not seeing before. And, and I'm starting to see some slightly different advertisements and other suggestions. So I found that has been a very healthy exercise for me to, uh, to just go through on a fairly regular basis. Like, yeah, make maybe every two or three months, find 10 or 15 people. If again, assuming you have a massive list of friends that you've accumulated over the years and go, Oh, here's someone from my old job. Haven't talked to them since I left the job delete. Um, and I found around the this time last year when the U.S. election was starting to really ramp up, that's when it made the most difference is I was able to go through and um, it really helped me get uh, opinions from different people who had different points of view from different places across the U.S. So yeah. in any case, back I, I, to you and your civil war. No, well, I, just, I found it just fascinating because really the, the one thing that sort of held society together, you know, in the past was at least there was a sense of a of a common or shared reality. You know, at least people could relate to a common set of truths. But truth has basically now been manipulated and it's being replaced by these conspiracy theories and social media is basically propagating it and it just keeps getting worse and worse. And you actually, you know, Derek, if you think about it, it's it's kind of like a metaphor for what we do around here. I'm, I'm stuck in my bubble watching only stuff like, you know, Happy Days and WKRP and Meatballs over and over. And you're always trying to get me to break out of my bubble and watch newer stuff. Obviously, the big difference between watching Meatballs for the 50th time and, you know, thinking Bill Gates is trying to inject me with a micro cracking chip or, you know, something like that. But anyway. I guess the whole point is that I, you know, I'm stuck in my bubble, I'm old, and I'm lame. So, here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, I thought I would do something a little bit different this week for my dad joke. Are you okay with that? Uh, yeah, let me guess. Is it going to be funny this week? Because that'd oh. be different. Because <laughs> it's always so lame, right? And it's not funny. Um, I decided I would do something a little different. I thought it would be really cool if I involved my seven-year-old son. Okay. All right. So what I did was I actually recorded this earlier, but here it is. All right, Sean, I have a question for you. What? Who tells the best jokes of all time? Chris McBrien. <laughs> you don't sound very convincing. Are daddy's jokes funny or are they lame? Lame. <laughs> <laughs> what makes my jokes lame? I don't get it. Because they make no sense. Here, tell one of your dad jokes. All right, let me think of a dad joke. What does a mermaid use to wash her tail? Soap. No, tide. See, I told you, they're cringy. (laughs) Oh, jeez. been nominated for a podcast award here every year since we started doing the show. So I think the format's working okay for us. Forget it. We're making changes. You can't keep forcing me to watch these bad movies. If you don't like it, too bad. This movie was so bad. It's not Back to the Future. There's probably not a person on the planet who likes 1986 more than me. It had a great soundtrack. John Cusack was so hungover. You know, the dick and fart jokes. They should have called it the hot mess time machine. Come on, wah, wah. 
All right, Derek, it was over to me this week to pick a movie um, because the last film that you did was The People versus Larry Flint. And so to keep in the spirit of that movie being a biopic about a, you know, person of questionable moral, you know, uh, composition, I decided to kind of go with the same kind of theme. And I went with 1980s Raging Bull. And that's obviously Martin Scorsese's film. Uh, he directed it. The screenplay was by Paul Schrader. It's starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Kathy Moriarty, and and Nick Colasanto. I would say if if you're a film buff, whether or not you like this film, you have to at least appreciate it as a piece of art because as far as I'm concerned, that's exactly what it is. It's kind of a throwback to early Hollywood and, and even foreign films that use the medium of film in really creative ways to tell a story and they use imagery and the film is like a canvas, you know, to paint a picture. So uh, that being said, uh, where does Raging Bull stack up for you? I don't think you'd ever seen it um, or maybe you had seen it once and you weren't really sure, uh, but you went back and watched it this week. So uh, where does it stack up for you? Not just among Scorsese's films, but maybe just in general as a film. Okay, so uh, I had seen this once before. That's what I in thought. The, yeah. In the mid to late 90s when I was working at Blockbuster Video, I, I think I mentioned this at the end of the last show, we used to get 10 free movie rentals a week at the video store, so nice. you were always looking for some motivation. Why? What should I rent next, and why would I rent it? And so you would often go on a run. Hey, I'm going to rent everything Tom Hanks has ever been in. I'm going to rent everything that... Uh, um, uh, Julia Julia Roberts has been and I'm going to rent every movie directed by Milos Forman I'm going to rent and so one time we said we're going to rent every movie directed by Martin Scorsese and that was when I saw Raging Bull for the first time we were doing a Scorsese film fest which I thought was a good way to do it because then I got to compare it like I like Scorsese's work a lot I don't like everything he does but for the most part I do enjoy his work and so it was a good way to really measure one movie of his against another and at the time I remember thinking eh, it was just okay uh, keeping in mind, I would have probably seen Goodfellas and Casino within a day or two of this. And those are two movies I, I really, really like. Mm -hmm. uh, now, in the late 90s, the AFI, the American Film Institute, yes. started putting out their famous AFI Top 100 lists. Oh, right. And so in the middle, I think it was the late 90s, they put out their very first one where it was, you know, 100 years, 100 films. And these were the best 100 films, American films ever made oh interesting and oh that'd be good raging bull was number four yep okay that all time yep. american movie top of the list only three movies beat it mm -hmm. uh but raging bull is number four and then in the year since then they've updated the list as newer films have come out and as, as maybe older movies have gained a little bit more appreciation and then they've they've subdivided the categories as well they've done like action movies and romantic movies and and sports movies was one of the categories they've also done and raging bullet was been the number one sports movie on the afi's list of the best american sports films ever made interesting so, it ranks number four on their all-time list of any movie, and mm -hmm. it ranks number one on their list of sports movies. Okay. I hated it. Jeez. <laughs> oh, this movie was terrible. It what? was. Uh, I didn't like it at all. It, I felt that I wasted... First of all, it's two hours and nine minutes. Yes. I felt like I wasted two hours and nine minutes of my life. I couldn't oh wait God. for this movie to end. It was so bad. Now, in all fairness... The, the direction and the way the movie is shot, great. I can totally understand and appreciate mm -hmm. that from an art, artistic point of view, from okay, a good. film lover 
as someone who has studied films, someone who has studied mm-hmm. communications, who's worked in communications as a pop culture guy, as a film aficionado, I can I can appreciate that. And from that point of view, I think Scorsese's direction, outstanding. And I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more about mm-hmm. that as we go. The idea to do it in black and white, the yeah. way the cameras were, the way the movie is shot. Awesome. A lot of very good and at the time, I'm sure, risky choices made by Scorsese that paid off. So from that point of view, mm-hmm. top marks. But as a as a whole, terrible. I didn't find the subject matter interesting. I didn't find any of the characters interesting. In fact, most of the characters and especially the character played by De Niro, the, the boxer LaMotta, had no redeeming qualities. I had no desire to see this person succeed no. whatsoever. That's the it, point. It, but, and none of the supporting characters had any redeeming qualities either. They were all terrible and they were terrible to each other. And mm-hmm. it was just, no, I, I, I couldn't wait for this movie to be over. And I don't think I ever want to have to watch this again, given that there are so many other movies that have come out that I have never seen before. I would rather try something else once then go back to this and have to sit through it which would now be a third time so that's my initial take no problem at all i mean lots of times you nominate films and i don't like them you know what i mean so that's what it's it's part of the whole thing that's what i think is going to make the next hour of this podcast so much fun is talking about this um I would like to point out one thing, though. The drop that we just did with the uh, sort of the, the, the compilation that we do at the, the, the beginning of every show um, was Hot Tub Time Machine. I was going to say, I think that was from Hot Tub Time Machine. Yeah. And so, I was giggling here. I thought that so was So this is coming from a person, Derek Myers, caveman, who has nominated Hot Tub Time Machine for this podcast. You have the audacity to say Raging Bull is crappy. So let's just put it in, you know, in that context. Okay, so that being said, I think this is going to be interesting. Normally, every week when we review one of our movies, we kind of break the movie down scene by scene and we kind of walk through the whole movie and kind of relive it all. I don't so, think we need to do that this Yeah, time. because you hated so long, it so much. We'd be here all night. Yeah, because yeah. you hated it so much. Let's just talk about the film in general and let's just pick it apart in regard to several themes and several topics, because what I think I'd like to do is at least if we do that by the end of this podcast, hopefully I'll be able to convince you of enough, you know, merits of the film for you to kind of reconsider your stance. So that's what I'm going to try and do. All right. Now, let's talk about Scorsese a little bit. He went to film school in New York. He went to NYU. So he was sort of separate from that California film school generation. You know, guys like Lucas and De Palma and Francis Ford Coppola and Spielberg. And because he was separate from those guys, his films always looked different. You know, they had that New York feel to them. And the themes that he explored in his films were inherently different from those other directors. Personally, and I mentioned this before, I still think his best film is Taxi Driver from 76. Now, Yancey and I reviewed that all the way back on episode 58 of this podcast, which, by the way, I just want to say, I think that might have been one of my all-time favorite episodes of doing this podcast. No offense, Derek. You know, just, it just, the, I remember that episode. It's one of my favorite movies. And also, if I remember correctly, I used a bunch of millennial terms on Yancey and he was just cringing the whole time. Maybe a bit of a precursor to the whole dad joke thing. But anyway, um, 
so just a little bit of production notes on the film before we get into it. So Martin Scorsese, you mentioned you got a chance to watch his body of work. He started out with Who's That Knocking at My Door, which I think he originally shot as a student film. It was released in 67. And then he went on to do Boxcar Bertha, Mean Streets, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and Taxi Driver. If you think about it, that is an absolutely astounding run for a young director. And then came his ambitious musical, New York, New York, which just bombed. And it sent Scorsese into a depression. And he really got into drugs and got addicted to cocaine. And then one day, De Niro went to see him in the, in the hospital and De Niro gave him um, Jake LaMotta's autobiography. And he told Scorsese he wanted to make it into a movie. And Scorsese went back to his roots, sort of as an independent filmmaker. Because New York, New York was more of a traditional studio movie, you know? And for me, the result of him going back to his roots was his most stylistic and classic art film of his entire career with Raging Bull. And you completely disagree, right? Uh, yeah, well, again, I, I can appreciate the movie from an artistic point of view. I didn't find it entertaining. And for me, when I watch a movie, it's unless I'm be. being graded by a professor on my analysis of it, mm -hmm. I want to feel like I've been entertained. And hey, I can watch depressing movies and still feel that I've been entertained. You can watch, uh, like I watch tons of documentaries and lots of those are, are horrific. Like things, bad things happen to people. Or something like The Killing Fields, which we've talked about before. Yeah, but even, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great example. Again, mm -hmm. it's a movie about atrocities that really happen and it's very emotional and, and there's a lot, you know, you're crying at the end of it, but it's like, I still feel like I've been entertained. And I think entertainment doesn't always have to equate to a smile, but I want to feel like, like I got my like the time I've spent with this piece of art, I've gained something out of it. And I just feel that with this movie, unless I'm breaking it down as a directorial study, none of those other things applied. I, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't feel entertained. I, I didn't. Uh, yeah, there's just there's a lot of stuff that I didn't care for. And I think some of that has come from time in that the movie is now, uh, you know, it's 40 years old and so many things have come since then. And the medium has changed so much in 40 years that sort of my expectations change. Um, you know, like I'm sure we'll talk about uh, De Niro uh, and his, his um, body transformation mm -hmm. in this film and how, you know, revolutionary this was that this hadn't been done before. But to look at it now uh, with today's lens and sort of just look back, you're like, well, hey, that's great. Good for him. Look how great shape he was in as the boxer and look at how crappy shape he was as the retired boxer. And, and hey, he deserved an Oscar. His performance was good. I just didn't feel the source material was was worth my time. I, I didn't care for it at all. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, audiences at the time agreed with you because although when it, when it was first released, Raging Bull was hailed, you know, by critics as a masterpiece right away. Rightly so, I would argue. You wouldn't. But audiences believed the way you did, Derek. They didn't care for it. And like New York, New York, Scorsese had another box office dud on his hands. It cost $18 million to make this film, and it made $23 million at the U.S. box office. And, you know, you think, oh, well, then, you know, it made a little bit of money. But by comparison, The Empire Strikes Back made 10 times that much that year, you know. Um, the Raging Bull finished 20th overall at the box office, J just ahead of Xanadu, by the way. <laughs> Another favorite. Um, 
And if you think about even the top ones that year, like I say, Empire Strikes Back, there was nine to five, stir crazy, Kramer versus Kramer, any which way you can, Private Benjamin, Coal Miner's Daughter. There was some good movies in 1980. But that being said, there were some really bad movies in 1982. I was looking at the list. Where the Buffalo Roam, In God We Trust, Guild Alive, One Trick Pony, Oh Heavenly Dog. I haven't heard of any of those movies. You never heard of any of those? None of them. One Trick Pony was with with Paul Simon. Oh Heavenly Dog was Chevy Chase. Guild Alive was uh, Gilda Radner. Did a live show and it bombed. And Where the Buffalo Realm was Bill Murray. He did a a sort of biopic on Hunter S. Thompson. Just bombed. I haven't Um, heard of any of those movies. I heard of all the other ones, the 9 to 5 and Mm -hmm. all the rest of those. Yeah, they they were all popular. Those were all the two Kramer's Kramer. Like, yeah, I, I haven't seen them all, but I've at least heard of all of them. And In God We Trust was Marty Feldman. He was like this monk that has to go out into society and stuff. Anyway, it was really terrible. They were all bombs. But anyway, so I thought I figured instead of like I say breaking down the movie, let's look at some of the themes because Scorsese has a few recurring themes throughout a lot of his films, especially earlier in his career. And as far as I'm concerned, they're all on display here with Raging Bull. The first of which is the Italian American experience. You know, he, he seems to capture this better than almost any other filmmaker. Like, it captures that that fast-talking, sort of expletive-laden speech patterns. And it's just this stereotypical Italian-American experience. There are all these loud interactions at home, usually laced with profanities and yelling. There's the machismo and, and the misogyny and the violence. Again, it's all stereotypes, but Scorsese depicts them. And I feel he does it, you know, in, in a very, very intimate way so let me ask you this Uh, again that's not a demographic that i fall into so i don't Mm -hmm. have any first-hand knowledge of it i only know what i know from tv and and movies and Mm -hmm. things like this that depict um the italian american experience as you've described it but my question is what came first did did Martin Scorsese see what was going on in the world around him and put it on display in in his movies or did he accentuate it in his movies for a broader audience to, you, you know, like sometimes you'll, you'll ramp something up to really emphasize it. And then did that become what people expected? And, and did that hmm. cause change? And I mean, I don't know the answer. And yeah. I don't know if you know the answer. It's almost like a chicken I, and the egg. Yeah. And it's like, because yeah. obviously he, he follows up with movies like Goodfellas and mm-hmm. Casino, where you have that idea of, you know, exactly. the mafioso and the guys yeah. who are the, the, the Italian-American criminals and, and all of that kind of stuff. And it's like, and there's certainly a, uh, a consistency in the way he presents these characters, which would lead someone like me to believe that. Well, these these stories all seem to be based on or loosely based on real life. So they must have certain amount of truth to them in their depiction of these characters and how they talk to each other and how they interact with each other. But uh, the more astute you become when you watch movies, you have to always keep that in mind that what is being exaggerated for the purposes of your art? What are you trying to actually say and what have you changed about the things that influenced this story to really make the point you're trying to make? And so that was one of the things I thought of when I was watching this was, uh, you know, how much of how much of what I was seeing was very much. This is what it is. And this is a this is a record of how it historically would have been versus how much was this now the influence so the people who saw themselves on the screen thought I have to be like that because that's now how the wider world expects me to be 
Well, I don't know. That, I don't know the answer. That's I don't know the answer either. That's a great question. Um, not being Italian American myself, now I will say there was a time back when we first met. When I used to live in Toronto and work in Toronto, I used to work with a bunch of uh, Italians in downtown Toronto, and they acted this way, you know. Um, but that being said, I think that Scorsese is depicting things, you know, quite realistically. Because if he didn't. You know, I think there would have been an outcry from the Italian community of which, you know, he was a part of. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And also Jake LaMotta was a consultant on this movie. And I don't you know, think he would have, you know, he would, would have signed on for a lot of this stuff. If he'd be like, hey, you're just exaggerating, you know, the way things are. He, he probably was like, you're capturing it exactly. And maybe not every Italian-American family is like this. That's not the point. But LaMotta's was. And I think Lamada's was maybe an exaggeration, but it was the, the extreme end of things, but it, it certainly was the way it was. Um, another thing I wanted to mention was uh, Sigmund Freud's Madonna Horror Complex. It's a theme that's been explored in a few of Scorsese's movies, especially his early stuff. Again, who's that knocking at my door? Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, and especially in this movie. If you remember, Groucho Marx once had a very famous joke, and he said... I, I would never want to belong to a club that would have someone like me as a member. And Scorsese explores this because there's a tendency in his male characters to treat women with the, through this lens. You know, you can kind of define it with Freud's complex. Like Jake LaMotta only sees women through the lens of this. You know, they're either a virgin or they're a whore. And LaMotta's rage regarding his jealousy is just fueled you know by his worldview of women you know through this lens it just consumes his view of women and it just drives his behavior and I think it's a major theme in the film and it's a difficult theme it's it's not comfortable and so when you say I watched this movie and I wasn't entertained that's why I say you're not supposed to be entertained by this you know you're, you're supposed to be uncomfortable that's the point of this film we're exploring some themes that are supposed to make you uncomfortable and that's kind of the whole point of it right i i, I mean i i, I assume that's I, that's correct i i can get behind that but for me and this is a problem i have with a lot of movies is many of the problems that the characters in the movies have are problems they've made themselves and I, this is a good example of that. Like the male characters, a hundred percent. Most of them are despicable, and the way they treat the women in this movie is deplorable. And I know that it's of its time. Like the movie takes place in the forties and fifties and sixties, and the gender roles were certainly different. And I assume in an Italian American community, they would have been even different than what what my understanding of that would have been. Uh, and I'm not excusing any of that, but I, I assume the depiction is accurate and but these characters it's like especially the main guy the Jake LaMotta it's like he's clearly got rage issues which makes sense since he's a boxer he's clearly got uh, confidence issues it's clearly he's jealous yep. it's like he's got like this inferiority superiority complex mm -hmm. where it's it's this whole thing you think you're better than me kind of thing and a lot of the, the male characters that are in this film all seem to have this same attitude and it's like this idea where everybody's angry at everybody else for the smallest slight and i'm sure this stems from other things but we're only seeing a small slice of this and it always bothers me when i when i see films like this where characters get angry for 
in my mind, what seems like a, a no good reason, mm-hmm. and they, they fly off the handle. And I just keep thinking to myself, well, this is a problem because you made it a problem. And why should I give a crap of the outcome, which in many cases is not positive, because you did something stupid, you chose to do something you know, ridiculous for whatever reason, and it's led to these consequences. And now, obviously, knowing what we know today and looking back, as a fighter, I'm sure that uh, LaMotta probably had brain injuries and, you know, there was probably other things going on, uh, which might have led to some of his poor decision making. But it's that kind of thing when I watch a movie like this, it's just like, oh, my God, look, here he goes again. The, mm-hmm. she, she goes over and says hello to somebody she's known for years and he gets all bent out of shape. Oh, are you sleeping with that guy? And rah, rah, rah. And it's like, why? Why are you getting all bent out of shape? It makes no sense to me that 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 anyone would would do that unless you've got brain damage from being punched in the head a hundred times. Yeah, but the thing is, this is you're looking at this as if it's sort of a typical film where he would be the protagonist. He's not. It's a character study. It's a character study of a deeply, deeply flawed human being. And people like this exist. They still exist. And we don't like to look at that. We don't like to admit it. But it happens. And people like this are around us. And and so it, it, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's supposed to make you realize, hey, life isn't always pretty. You know, there's a, there's a lot of ugly stuff, you know, going on just under the surface in a, in a lot of people's lives. Um, I mentioned at the top uh, some of the people involved in making the movie. Paul Schrader. I just want to touch base on him for a second. He co-wrote the screenplay with uh, Marduk Martin. This guy, Paul Schrader, is he's an interesting, interesting human being in Hollywood because he's always injected a lot of violence and sex into his screenplays. If you think, you know, about the work he's done, like American Gigolo and Cat People and Taxi Driver and even Autofocus, which came out, you know, many years later, um, you know, he, he wanted to actually include a lot more sex and violence into this film especially the sex and they made a, had to make a lot of changes to his screenplay the, the scene where near the end when Lamad is thrown in prison um, Schrader originally wrote the scene to include masturbation if you can believe it and Scorsese was like nah man this is too much and so instead he had Jake beat his head and his fists into the brick walls just a brutal 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 scene it's really hard to watch that scene and i would argue it's much more effective you know i i think schrader is an important screenwriter but i think he's always been a little bit predictable as well with some of his stuff but anyway i just i think he's an important guy to just to mention in all this but i want to talk about you and i have talked about the oscars a lot you know, on this podcast and the 1980 Academy Awards. So Raging Bull was nominated for eight Oscars, including picture, director, actor, supporting actor, supporting actress, and editing. And it won two for editing and best actor. Um, Robert De Niro is a very uh, decorated actor, you know, to say the least, right? He, He won for best supporting actor with The Godfather Part II, and he won here, obviously, for Raging Bull. But he's been nominated seven times. Pretty impressive. You got to at least admit, I mean, his performance was good, right? Oh, absolutely. And and like I said before, the um, I, I got to think that a big part of why he was recognized for this award at this time was mm-hmm. the fact that he 
got into such physical, su- such good physical shape to to accurately depict the body of a of a boxer in his prime, and then to uh, put on all that weight so that he could play the same character. 20 odd years later mm-hmm. as a retired man who's now put on this weight and is you know is he he's he's gone through this body transformation and it's not a fat suit it's not prosthetics although I, I mean i'm sure there were some prosthetics for the nose and stuff but for the yeah. most part it was he just literally put on the weight like yes. i think i read they had to put the movie on hold for like four to six months while he he gained all the weight and then when they were shooting scenes with him once he was so heavy he, he couldn't do as much work per day because he just didn't have the stamina because right. he was in such poor shape because 60 he was in such pounds he put on yeah yeah so I, I can certainly get why the 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 body of people that recognize the the excellence of the art would reward him for making such a a time consuming and and important physical commitment to his art. And that's above and beyond the acting itself, which was great. I mean, I may not have en- I may not have liked the character. I may not have enjoyed the movie, but I thought his performance was fantastic. But um, uh, or not, but but that that's that certainly goes a long way to understanding why did he win? And you look mm-hmm. at the people he was up against. I mean, they were good, but they weren't to this level good. So I have no bones about him being decorated for this film, uh, given given his performance. Um, would I have been uh, upset if Scorsese had won director? No, I think that would have been a good call as well. If Raging Bull had won for best film, well, like I said, I'm not really, I'm not really digging this movie. So that one's one that I could, I personally wouldn't have really agreed with. But I can see a lot of people looking back, and you know, like we said at the top of the show, number four on the all-time 100 list, mm-hmm. number one on the all-time sports movies. So I think if it had won best picture, a lot of people would have been happy, and a lot right. of people would have thought that was the right pick. Um, but the other performances, I mean, Pesci's good, but I don't necessarily think Pesci's great all the time. And he was good in this, but I don't think he was award worthy good. And um, who else did you say was nominated? Um, Kathy Moriarty was nominated for supporting. Um, was she nominated for? I think yeah, she was. was. Yeah, she yeah, was. So, I mean, and she again, didn't win. She was okay, yeah. but oh, I didn't God. really feel that she was really in the movie that much. And when she was, I didn't think she really performed like her performance to me wasn't like oh my god who is this her performance is fantastic i think in large part i think in large part because of the part she's been given Mm -hmm. it it, you know you you can only be as good as the material that's provided and um so i mean i wasn't heartbroken to hear that she didn't win that's Uh, that's i did going back to pesci for a minute when they when they later in the movie after the brothers have had a falling out and uh jake lamonic tries to reconcile with his brother and he meets him in uh the car garage yes and uh then he like hugs him and stuff Mm -hmm. pesci has this like hairdo and the beard and the mustache Mm -hmm. and stuff oh my god i thought he was stanley tucci it was I, i just i started laughing i couldn't stop laughing for the for a couple of minutes just the way he looked it was such a transformation because he's got like this sort of little Afro-y style hairdo through that when he's supposed to be younger. And then as he gets older, it's like, and he's got the, the hairs all, I think he's bald, even if I remember correctly, but it's just the, the way they had changed his look was so, so different. It just, it took me right out of the scene. Anyway. So you mentioned something interesting about reflecting back, you know, years later, and you and I have done that on a lot, a few times on this podcast. And in retrospect, the film that wins the Oscar, you know, for Best Picture doesn't always hold up, you know, after times pass. And I would argue 
that that is certainly the case with 1980. Ordinary people won Best Picture. No way. No way. Yeah, no, that's, way that's a, it's a better film. What were the other nominees? You have the list there? Uh, so I, I don't have it in front of me. I'm just trying to think. So there was uh, Ordinary People and. Um, Coal Miner's Daughter, probably. Coal Miner's Daughter would have been nominated. Because um, Sissy Space, it was it was the Sissy Spacek one for Coal Miner's Daughter. Yeah, so Sissy Spacek won uh, Best Actress. I just want to, I'll come back to her in one second. I just want to, yeah. just talk again about about uh, ordinary people because of the director. So, you know, you mentioned you wouldn't have been upset if Scorsese won. He should have won over Robert Redford. Yeah, know, for ordinary. But again, Redford's pedigree and his history, and That's you got to remember, a lot of these words are political. They are. It's about who you know and who you shake hands with and who you have a relationship with. And I got to think that someone like Redford had a lot more friends in Hollywood than someone like Scorsese. Absolutely. Given where they were in their point in their career. Plus, you know, um, yeah, no, I think I, th- I think that's uh, that's a large part of it. Which is not to say that Ordinary People was a bad movie. No, I just I actually it thought it was not bad. There was some good. And things Redford's about gone him. on to do to do other work. Like he's mm-hmm. clearly got some ability, but he's no Martin Scorsese. Like who are you kidding? And if you think about like that was his first movie, Redford's first film, and you know if if you think about all he really does thematically is just shoot every single scene using the photography rule of thirds. That's all yeah. I can ever think about when I watch Ordinary People. Yeah. Whereas Raging Bull is like just a tour de force of using film as a as a medium of art. And Scorsese uses the camera like, like a master just to create this picture. Like he uses black and white and different frame speeds and close-ups and deep focus and it's 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 using film as a medium to tell a story no no way redford was the better director um agreed best supporting actor um i can understand the argument for timothy hutton over pesci i mean hutton he was pretty amazing in ordinary people but you got, there's no way mary steenburgen in melvin and howard was more deserving than kathy moriarty moriarty i know you didn't like her performance i really got to disagree with you she was 17 years old when they shot this film and she captures the emotions of this neglected wife especially later in the film like an actress with 20 years of experience you know and when she first comes on the screen when jake sees her by the pool she you said you weren't really struck by her i felt that she has an on-screen presence that i don't think has been seen on film since marilyn monroe like moriarty's career pretty much you know disappeared after this film and she was in neighbors with Aykroyd and Belushi I remember that and she was in a movie called Soap Dish and she's worked pretty consistently just in nothing major you know just these small forgettable roles right but I also would argue with the best actress Oscar um, Sissy Spacek won for Coal Miner's Daughter and you know, it just goes back to what you were, you've said before, Derek. The Academy loves it when actors portray real life people on film. Yeah. You well, know? yeah, it's funny you bring that up. So I read a thing that was the point they like one of the trivia things they said was in this year, um, De Niro won for playing real life person Jake LaMotta and yep. Sissy Spacek won for Coal Miner's Daughter. It yep. was uh, uh, the singer, right? Loretta Lynn. Loretta Lynn. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And in, in this is this is the only time where both male and female leading performers won for playing a real person where the real person was still alive and present at the Oscars oh, cool. when the award was won. Right. 
And I thought that was an interesting, and I think it just, you know, it puts the exclamation point on the, the, the point you were just saying, which we brought up previously, where the, the Academy loves to reward people for portraying a real person. Like Julia Roberts. Yeah. She won an Oscar for playing Aaron Brockovich. She'd been great in a dozen other movies before then, but that's the one they decided to give it to her for. Know, okay. And all she really did was wear a push-up bra, you know, to, to get that Oscar in a lot of ways. The bra should have got a supporting Oscar. Yeah, exactly. Oh, there you go. Um, so the one thing I will mention, I know I'm really sort of arguing for, um, for Raging Bull here over ordinary people, but I will say there is no way that Sissy Spacek should have won over Mary Tyler Moore in Ordinary People. Mary Tyler Moore was just incredible in that movie. Yeah. Like she played against type, and to me, she just sort of reminded the world of how just how amazing of an actress that she really was. She wasn't just Mary Richards. You know, my God, her performance as Beth Jarrett, just, it was the rule of her career. So yeah. I think it just goes to show, like we've always said, winning an Oscar doesn't always mean it's the best of that year. You know, um, yeah, yeah. It's like just so much more, like you said, politics and current tastes and career arcs and all that stuff. You're so right. Yeah, and I, we brought it up before. One of the uh, one of the podcasts I listen to a lot is uh, Bill Simmons' podcast on the Ringer Network. And one of the things he's been saying for years is just like with professional sports, where your athlete can't go into the Hall of Fame until a certain amount of time has passed. Uh, it would be interesting to see movie awards be the same way. After five years, we're going to go back and award the Academy Awards for the best everything from five years ago. And it would be interesting to see how things change, how taste has changed, how with five years of, of reflection, you can look back and say, oh, yeah, clearly that should be the winner. But of course, that's not the way the industry works. They award in the moment. Right. And it's it's a lot of other uh, I don't want to say shenanigans, but who are we kidding? A lot of other shenanigans are behind the scenes and politics and glad handing and who goes to the junkets and who plays the game and who doesn't. And yeah, a lot of times, unfortunately, they they don't make the right choice. And history is often the, uh, uh, you know, tells the tale that, hey, like you look back at, at certain movie years and you say, like, how did Star Wars not win the Oscar for Best Picture. How did Shawshank Redemption or Pulp Fiction not win the Oscar for Best Picture over Forrest Gump? Like, are you kidding me? How, how is Robert Shaw not nominated, even nominated for an Oscar for Jaws? Yeah, for Jaws. Crazy. And, and, and seriously, but you give the silent movie The Artist the Oscar mm -hmm. like less than 10 years ago. Are you kidding me? I don't know anybody who's seen that movie. Like that was a total political move. So, any case, that's a whole other podcast, which I think we've already had. So we don't I have feel to like we have talked about that. I want to talk. Yes. It's funny you mentioned the artist, you know, although that was silent, but it was black and white. So, black and white is something I think we need to touch base on here because the movie sure. is obviously in black and white and done for stylistic reasons. Audiences today, I think, have a bit of an aversion to black and white films. But Derek, you know, Mad Max Fury Road. The, yes. You had me watch for, I think it was last year on the podcast. Originally, George Miller wanted to shoot the film in black and white. The studio said, no way. No, I, say, I can't imagine that would have gone over well. But you could find on YouTube a black and white version of the trailer. It looks better than the original. It looks fantastic. But the thing is, is that modern audiences just, they wouldn't go out to the theater to see it. Like, like they, they, they would only go if it's in color, you know, and it just goes to show, you know, studios, they just are driven by profits, right? Instead of directorial vision, like they used to be back in the 70s and 80s. Um, I think I'll, give you, sorry, I'll give you another modern example yeah. of that. The, 
the uh, the comic book movie, the X-Men, they there was a, mm-hmm. a movie not too long ago featuring Wolverine that was called Logan. And the idea was that it's like this, you know, 20 years after the X-Men film franchise has had its heyday, all the, the mutant characters, all the main characters have started to die off or been hunted or whatever. And so this is Wolverine at, at making his last stand. It's what has he done in his retirement? He's clearly near the edge of his lifespan. And they actually... So they released it and it did very well. It was very well received. It got a lot of accolades. And then they released it again in black and white and called it Logan Noir. And oh. it, it, they they released it theatrically that way and it made additional money. And if you bought the DVD or the Blu-ray, most of them have the film in black and white and in color so that you have the choice when you have it in your own home of which to watch. And that's another one where the director wanted to do it in black and white was was discouraged from doing it by the people who were paying the bills. But at the end of the day, as the quote unquote director's cut was able to re-release it in black and white and people feel people who enjoy the movie feel the black and white is far superior to the color. So yeah. you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think there, there's been some really good examples of movies that have been shot in black and white, like since color film was invented and it where it was done really well. Like movies, if you think like Schindler's List and Roma, those are really good examples. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, throughout this and whole era, yeah, you had one? I was going to say Clerks, but... Oh, yeah, that's yeah. Just, that, that was, was more, more just for reasons. budget. Because <laughs> didn't have If any your money. movie is a dialogue-driven film, yeah. you don't have... Like, that's... And that, I've read things about that where they asked Kevin Smith, why'd you do it in black and white? He said, well, in part because I couldn't afford color, but he right. said, in part, the movie's about the dialogue. So let's strip away all the visual distractions so that you listen to the dialogue. So... Okay, sorry, we'll go back to it. No, I was just going to say, of all the films that have been made, you know, sort of since the invention of color, I still think Raging Bull is the best. You know, I, I think there's a tendency for people to think of movies that are shot in black and white, you know, since color has been invented, that these are just like, you know, quote unquote art films, you know. But if you think like, why do people use that term art film? You know, for me, it's because black and white is an art form. I believe that. What, what about you? I think uh, I think a lot of people would say it's like an art film because you if you take a film class, the majority of your syllabus is going to be classic films that are in black and white. So I think the preconception most people have is if you go to school to study film, you're going to be watching films that are in black and white. So if something is presented to you in black and white, you just assume, oh, it's an artsy film because it's like something you would see in an art class, in a film appreciation class. So that, that's always been my take on it. Well, the thing with shooting movies in black and white is like it has to be for a reason. Like you mentioned with Clerks, there's a reason why he did it. Well, number one was the budget. But number two is because he wanted to strip things down and focus on the, the dialogue. So it, it, it has to be for an artistic purpose. And if you think about it, that's the case with Raging Bull. Like. Everything in Jake Labata's life was black or white. There's there's no room for anything gray. You know, as, as I mentioned before, you know, to him, women are Madonnas or whores. There's winners and there's losers. Everything is black and white. And that's one of the reasons why I think the, the film wouldn't have worked as well in color. Also, I mean, it takes place in the 40s. So, you know, it makes sense to shoot it in black and white, you know, to give it that look. But the way that Scorsese uses light and shadow is so effective in black and white. And another thing was he didn't want the film to be sort of bathed in red blood, you know, from all the fight scenes. 
So he yeah. wanted to take away from that drama, that blood, and by shooting it in black and white. And um, the thing is, though, in black and white, it's still gory. Like, it doesn't lose, you know, any of its effect. We still get the impression of the blood, you know, from the wet sponges and when the, when the blood sprayed all over the spectators in the yeah. front row. Jeez. Yeah. And interestingly, there's a montage in the film that shows Jake and Vicky getting married and having kids and moving into a house. And the montage is in color. Really yeah, I know. I, I noticed that, and yeah. I, I sort of noticed it, but I didn't immediately pick up that it had been in black and white, and now it's in color. Until it went back to black and white, and then it dawned on me mm-hmm. that last few minutes was in color. I don't um, know what the reason is. I mean, you could argue it's you know Scorsese's maybe trying to look at the world through rose-colored glasses or something for that those homey scenes. I don't know. It's just it's very artistic. But I mean, another argument that's been put out there over the years is that Scorsese shot this movie in black and white because Rocky just came out four years before and was really successful and he wanted to sort of differentiate you know his film from Stallone's film yeah I had read that too uh, that 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 was not the reason to do it but was certainly one of the reasons to do Mm it another theme I want to mention is jealousy you've touched base on this and, you know, we've mentioned Jake LaMotta is just driven by his worldview of women, especially his wife. And obviously the Madonna whore complex comes into play. You know, he just believes she's cheating on him. And at one point in the movie, this young up and coming boxing challenger comes along named Gennaro. And Vicky makes this off the cuff comment that, you know, he's got a pretty face. And it just drives Jake into this jealous rage. So... You know, he's he's all all the experts are predicting he's going to lose in this fight. No, not only does he win, he beats Gennaro to an absolute pulp and he just keeps pounding his face. And when he's done beating the living snot out of this guy, what does he do? Looks in the audience, finds Vicky and just stares her down like it's just brutal. And Nick Colasanto is like. He ain't pretty no more. (laughs) It's such a brutal scene, my God. And, you know, you kind of alluded to this, the scene when they're in the the bar, the Copa Club, and Jake watches Vicky walk from guy to guy. And all she's doing, like you said, she's just saying hi. You know, in that typical Italian fashion, they kiss on the cheek, right? Jake only sees it as her kissing guys. And... Scorsese plays up these scenes because he doesn't use sort of standard slow motion. You know, instead of shooting everything at 24 frames per second, um, these scenes were shot with in 48 frames per second. But the, where we see Jake's face, he's still in 24 frames per second, but she's shot in 48. So it just punches up that whole kind of motif, you know? He's watching her in slow motion, just as his jealousy's boiling over, right? And, you know, we we see Scorsese use slow motion at other points in the movie. Um, When he first sees her by the pool, it's almost like he doesn't see her as a woman. He just sees her as an object, you know, to obsess over. And then, talking about jealousy, that you mentioned it when he accuses um, uh, Joey, uh, um, uh, Pesci's character of sleeping with his wife and it's just ridiculous like yeah. they're Italian they kiss on the cheek and and Jake is accusing Joey of, of, of you know cheating with her and 
so much so he just accuses Vicky and so of course she just says this is so outrageous she's just like yeah right whatever whatever I, yeah I cheated with him I cheated with everybody and so what does he do he goes into Joey's house and beats the crap out of him right in front of his wife and kids and then Vicky comes in and he punches her you know and, and, and like when the thing is at any point in this movie when we see that jealousy kind of rear its ugly head he just gets more ferocious in the ring and it's like his jealousy outside the ring fuels his rage inside the ring. You know, it's just a, an, an ongoing motif. So powerful. Yeah, I don't, oh. I don't know. I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying, but to me, it's almost like, and I, I mean, I could totally be misreading it, but it's almost like you want to excuse some of his actions outside of the ring because, oh, well, being a being a fighter is what he's the best at. And if this is what's going to make him a better fighter, you can excuse some of those other things. But there's so many of the things he does are unexcusable. And again, I understand that the movie is, takes place in a time where things were different. But if that kind of thing happened today, it wouldn't happen for very long. People would either stand up for themselves, fight back, ask for help, call the police. Like none of those things happened because I got to think of at the time it was just the societal. Uh, I don't want to say this. Well, it was the societal norm that certain things were just accepted and, and you know, certain gender roles played out in certain ways. But uh, as I mentioned before, like. He, he suffered from so much extreme jealousy that just seemed so misplaced. And I never really felt that they gave me a good reason for why he had this, uh, this crazy jealousy. Like, I, I just, I don't understand it. It's, and it's, it's straightforward. It's because of toxic maxi masculinity, right? That's well, what, that's I, I what, guess. That's, yeah. that's what the whole movie is about. You know, right from the get go, the, the opening scene, he's complaining to his first wife about how she cooks the steak. You know, like he's mean to her, he's cruel to her, he treats her like like she's beneath him. And if you think about it, the whole idea of eating steak, you know, like what's what's more representative of ultra masculinity than cutting and eating, you know, the charred flesh of an animal? You know, like it's yeah. it's like this expression of dominance, right? And, and and the boxing scenes, they're just it's not a boxing movie. That's why I was laughing before when you said, you know, it's the number one sports film of all time. And we'll come back to that in a second. It's, to me, it's not a boxing movie. It's it, The boxing is just representative of this toxic max masculinity. And like what better example of masculinity than two guys, you know, in a ring beating each other to a pulp, right? I mean, the misogyny, the yelling, the profanity, the insecurity, the jealousy, the whole movie is basically an exploration of the effects, the devastating effects of toxic masculinity. And and we've seen this theme explored in other films, but I would say Raging Bill Bull does it better than, than any other film in history. Uh, which I, I don't disagree with. I, I, I guess I just, it's not a topic that I'm, I'm interested in, in watching. So it's like, I, I don't know. I, that's part mm -hmm. of the reason I didn't like it. I didn't mm -hmm. feel that and any of the male that. characters had any redeeming qualities. And I just the whole time kept thinking, good, you're getting what you deserved. And why are you doing these stupid things? Like you're creating your own problems. Hey, look at that. You went to jail because you were stupid. Like you brought a lot of this. Hey, you got conflict with your brother and your friends because you made bad choices. And I just I had a hard mm -hmm. time 
understanding why anyone would make these choices. And maybe that's that says something about the the you know the world that I grew up in where where things are different or things are changing or I've had opportunities or privilege that others haven't had. And it's unfortunate if 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 this is the reality for for other people. But yeah, I don't know. This this I don't know. I, I just I didn't well, I didn't like it. I didn't care for it. At I, all. I get it. And you're not supposed to like it. You're supposed to be uncomfortable. And without getting into too much, I mean, my wife is a social worker. And I can tell you this toxic masculinity, it exists in our society. It's still there and it's uncomfortable to talk about, you know, and it's uncomfortable to look at and it's uncomfortable to see, especially if you've grown up in a, in a, in a good family, you know, like you and I have, we've been very lucky, you know, we've grown up with privilege and, you know, we both had good families with parents who love us and siblings and, but not everybody has that, you know, unfortunately. And, and it's, Unfortunately, it's worth exploring and it's worth seeing sometimes that underbelly of society to really, you know, appreciate what we've got. Um, You mentioned about uh, it being a sports movie, which, you know, I thought was interesting because you said it was the number one rated sports movie of all time. I think it's interesting because for me, this movie is not really about boxing, you know, as crazy as that sounds. It's about jealousy and rage and it's about misogyny and distorted worldviews the boxing is is just a manifestation of those emotions you know and those themes yeah i I think for me if if there had been like i think i read somewhere there's only 12 minutes of boxing in a movie that's two hours and nine minutes you have almost two full hours of not boxing in what is considered by many to be the best boxing movie ever made. Mm-hmm. I want it, you know, if I'm going to commit myself, to, honestly, I'm not a big fan of of the boxing genre on, on its face. I mean, I've seen a lot of those kinds of movies. I've certainly seen all the Rocky movies and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to see more of that, especially seeing how Scorsese shot the boxing scenes. And I could really like that to me was the highlight of this movie for me was I'm watching these boxing scenes going, this is amazing. And reading about how he did these things and how he was the first one to 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 do it in a certain way and to have the camera in the ring. And like you had mentioned, I think at the end of the last podcast, how certain scenes he had a ring that was deliberately done bigger and deliberately done smaller so that the scenes would the shots would look a certain way like that to me was fantastic. But if I got to sit through two hours of crap to get 12 minutes of good, that to me is not a fair trade off. It's not a good ratio. I wanted another half hour of the boxing stuff and a half hour less of some of the the raw, raw look at me. I, you know, you think you're better than me. I, I don't need that. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you're looking for sort of sort of technically correct boxing scenes, you don't watch Raging Bull. Because that's not what it is. I mean, Scorsese didn't even care about trying to depict the boxing scenes with any strategy or any technique because that's not what the movie, but that's not what Jake LaMotta was all about, you know? But that being said, these are some of the most memorable boxing scenes ever captured on film. Like you mentioned, you know, there's the the slow motion, the, the blood flying everywhere, the sweat, you know, the, the, the refusal of Jake LaMotta to ever be knocked down. You know, at one point, he's supposed to take the fall. Remember, he's, right. he's, they're like, hey, Ben, you got to fall down in this match. So what does he do? He just puts his arms down and just lets Sugar Ray just beat him to a pulp. But, you know, I mean, his, his face looks like filet mignon at the end of the fight. Mm-hmm. But he goes over to Sugar Ray and you know what he says to him? You never knock me down. <laughs> like, right. It was just like, oh, it was. And, and the, the way, like you mentioned, Scorsese has these different size rings, you know, like it goes from big and small. And 
you know, I just, I don't know. The other thing too was, it's interesting. They shoot from below in these, uh, you know, in the, in the boxing scenes, just like in Rocky, you know, they always shoot them from below. I guess you don't have to pack an arena full of extras. (laughs) That's one thing. And, and I think the important thing there is, is what's important is what's going on inside the ring, you know? So I just, I think you, you've ended up, you know, here with some of the most memorable boxing scenes in history. And they're not even technically realistic or accurate, which is just amazing, you know. Um, the, the other theme I want to just touch base on before we move on is mirrors. Because Scorsese uses mirrors throughout this film. There's the mirrors in the bedroom, in the bathroom, the back of the door, and even the reflection in the phone booth door. Normally, directors use mirrors to depict self-reflection, Right. And if you think about Jake LaMotta, he can't really express himself with words, you know? So maybe he uses, you know, his reflection to determine how the world sees him, you know, to maybe see how he shows himself to the world or something. It's just, it's it's, it's an interesting thematic thing that goes on. I don't know if Scorsese maybe just uses the mirrors because they look cool, you know, especially in black and white. But I, I think... Scorsese is probably way too talented as a director to just to use stylistic props just for the hell of it. And if you think of the final scene, one of the best final scenes of any film, as far as I'm concerned, when he's sitting there and he's looking in the mirror and he's reciting Brando's on the waterfront speech. Yeah. He's looking in the mirror and he's not just reflecting back on his life. He's reflecting on his relationship with his brother, which is what that speech is all about. Right, right, right. You know, and and he's not talking to himself. He's talking to his brother. And the the thing is, it's it's not the best delivery of that speech. I mean, like think about it. De Niro's got the chops to do that speech as good or better than Brando did. But that's not the point. Yeah, but he's playing exactly. Lamada and it's playing Lamada doing this scene. Exactly. Which- Exactly. Which we know. I mean, we see at the very beginning of the movie, you see the older Lamada rehearsing his, what he's going to present on stage, and so you see that he he thinks he's going to be able to get on stage and and deliver this, and you realize it's like, ooh, you are not a good public speaker. You are nope. not an actor. He's uh, not. You're right. And so when you see that scene at the end of the movie, it just reinforces what you already knew. He he can say the words, and he may even understand some of what the, the deeper meaning is, but. He's he's not able to deliver it with the emotion of a, a, a of an actor. So we, like in, mm-hmm. the character is mm-hmm. thinking, I'm going to portray this like like um, uh, Brando did. Right. But uh, obviously he doesn't. Yeah. To your point, it's it's not that uh, De Niro can't De Niro can't do it. It's that LaMotta can't do it. Right. And, and, and LaMotta always expresses himself through brutality and rage. Yeah. And when that's taken away from him, you know, because of age or because of him putting on weight, all he's got left is his speech. And that's why he ends up in these seedy bars or these strip clubs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I just, I, I know you've mentioned De Niro isn't one of your favorite actors, you know? And I, I get it. He, he often seems to be playing sort of different variations of just the same character. But I don't know. I think for what he does, I think he does it very well. Um, Scorsese used him as a main collaborator in the early part of his directing career. He's moved on to Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, for the latter part of his career now. Scorsese, that is. Yeah, Scorsese has. Yeah. But I know even though you're not the biggest De Niro fan and you're not the biggest Raging Bull fan, but I would hope 
that as a film fan that you can acknowledge the style, the substance, the themes, and just the importance of Raging Bull as an important film. For me, going back full circle to what we said at the beginning of the podcast, I think it's one of the five most important American films of all time. I think it's right up there with, and this is in no particular order, I would say, Citizen Kane, The Godfather, There Will Be Blood, Taxi Driver, Pulp Fiction, and Raging Bull. Maybe that's six, so... I think it's just, a, I think it's an important film. Um, I hate to ask you this, but can you give it a rating out of 10? I'm going to give it a very generous for its direction, mm-hmm. five. Okay. <laughs> it, it passes. It gets a pass for me. It gets the the minimum you need to make a passing grade at 50%. I'm going to give it a five out of 10. I would not recommend this to very many people unless they were studying film mm-hmm. or were some in some other way uh, film buffs and they wanted to like revisit the classics like this is something that I think you would recommend to Yancey because he may not have seen it and mm-hmm. I do think it's important that someone who thinks of themselves as a film lover goes back and, and reviews older films to, to understand where some of the more modern conventions have come from Right. Uh, so from that point of view it definitely deserves marks and I think honestly I think it's one of Scorsese's best if not his best work I don't like the movie but I love the direction mm-hmm. I love a lot of the stylistic choices he made I think De Niro's performance is great I just don't think it's a good movie and so that's I'm gonna give it a five oh, that, see this is where I thought I would get you because you're you're a film buff like I am that's one of the reasons why we became such good friends all those years ago and have been friends ever since and this is where I thought I would get you it was as a film buff you would you know really appreciate this as a film but out of 10 hey, I will, I, the five was the appreciation man I guess I will give it out of 10 I would give it a 9.75 Wow, that it's, is it's that good. Wow, as a film, so okay, it is what it is. I don't know. Obviously, you completely disagree, but uh, that's just the way it is. But anyway, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. All right, my friend, it was my film, so it's over to you. Take us away. What do you got? All right, so this trivia might uh, be a little embarrassing for you. Uh, I don't normally <laughs> now that, so. Yep. We've been listening back to the greatest hits episodes where we put together the oh, trivia yes. segments. Yes, yes. Those are a lot and of fun. Those, a lot of the, the, like the first three or four times you had me on the show, I, I didn't really fully appreciate that you didn't have that 90s and 2000s movie knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so I threw a lot of questions at you that fell into that vein that you just yeah. had no idea of the answer. No clue. And, yeah. and I kind of felt like I maybe embarrassed you a little on your own show. <laughs> so okay. let me apologize all these years later for doing that. That's all right. And no then worries. since I understood sort of your wheelhouse, I've tried to give you trivia that I think you actually have a chance of answering correctly. And in some cases I reach out a little bit just to try and mm-hmm. test the waters and, you know, make, make you work for it. I do that for Today, you too. Yeah. I, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, but today, I, I'm going to move you out of your comfort zone, but oh, no. I think there's a chance you might actually do okay on this okay. one. All right. So, this is arguably Robert De Niro's greatest performance. I would say so. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think you'll have a lot of people that would... If you said that this was his greatest performance, mm-hmm. most people would either agree or say, yeah, I could be talked into, into giving that answer. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. So... With that in mind, I want to look at Robert De Niro's career. Okay. So I looked at his IMDb credits, mm-hmm. and he's got uh, over 100 acting credits. Unreal. This guy is a machine. He put out so much stuff. <laughs> yes. And I personally 
found that in the late 80s going into the 90s was when I started to see more and more of De Niro's stuff. And then, of course, into the 90s, I started working at the video store. And so anytime something new came out, I would see it. So 90s De Niro for me is the one that I know the best. And so today I'm going to test you on 90s De Niro. 90s De Niro. I'm in trouble. So I pulled almost every movie he was in from 1990 to 2000. There was like 25 on the list. I think I pulled like 17 or 18 of them. This is what I'm going to do. In 10 years, he did 25 films? Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. That's this guy crazy. just can't stop working. Now, in all fairness, some of these movies, he's not the star. He's He's got right. smaller parts. But right, again, right. when you get to be De Niro, you can have a smaller part and still be a big part of the movie. Sure. So this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Often on this show, I don't feel we necessarily give ladies enough love. There's a mm-hmm. lot of strong actresses that I, I just think when we put our list together, we tend to just call out the guys. Right. And so I think it's important to acknowledge the great work that the women do in a lot of these films. So De Niro, having done over a hundred, has a hundred acting credits, has worked with almost every great actress you can imagine. Oh, for sure. So in the nineties, he worked, he did a ton of movies. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the name of the leading lady from the film that De Niro was in. And I want you to name the movie. Now, some of these might be a real shot in the dark for you. So if you don't have an immediate guess, I will then give you the year it came out, but you know, it'll be between 1990 and 2000. And I'll read you the description from the IMDb, which should hopefully help. That helps. I usually do that for you too. I'm going to start, I'm going to start with just giving you the name of the actress. I'm going to relax. I'm going to have a drink and I'm going to do my best at this. Okay. Okay. And I got, I got a fair amount of them here. And and uh, realistically, Chris, I know based on what you know, you're probably not going to do so well in the trivia tonight. And I'm sorry about that, but I just thought this was a good, good avenue to go down. So, all right. We're going to start in the in 1990 and we're just going to, every movie is going to be newer than the one that came before it. So you ready? You're giving me the female, the year and the synopsis. Is that what you're giving me? Or just the female? I, I, if you want all of those things, I will give you all those, but I'm going probably to start help me. just the actress okay. first. All right, go ahead. Okay. Jane Fonda. Um, I don't know. Okay. It came out in 1990 mm-hmm. and the description is a struggling widow falls in love with an illiterate short order cook whom she teaches to read and write in her kitchen each night. I don't know. Okay. It was called Stanley and Iris. Oh God. Okay. That was a tough one. All That's right. Okay. Next. All right. Julie Kavner, the voice of Marge Simpson. Oh, I, yeah, I know Julie Kavner. I don't know what movie she was in though. Also in 1990, mm-hmm. and this you should get it from the description. The victim of encephalitis epidemic many years ago have been catatonic ever since, but now a new oh. drug offers the prospect of reviving them. Oh, that was Penny Marshall's um, Awakenings, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know you'll get some of these from yeah. the description. Okay, next one. Jennifer Jason Lee. Oh, God. I, I don't know. 1991, mm-hmm. two Chicago firefighter brothers who don't get along have to work together while a dangerous arsonist is on the loose. Was it Backdraft? Yeah, it was Backdraft. Yeah. Oh, yes. Good job. <laughs> that was Ron Howard, wasn't it? It was indeed. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. okay I didn't know that uh, that she was in. I think I'd seen parts of that. Anyway. Oh, no, I've never seen it either. Okay. This is a nice, easy, slow ball right over the plate. All right. Jessica Lang. Um, Jessica Lang. 1991. Oh, was it? 
Was it Scorsese's Cape Fear? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was. There you go. See, Ooh. I knew you'd get that one. Oh, okay. Yeah. I had to think about that. All right. It's in the 90s. I'm not so good with this. I, I know. Some yeah. of these, I, you, you're going to really need to lean on But it was Scorsese, so, yeah. All right. Uma Thurman. Mm, I don't know. Okay. It was in 1993. The description is when a shy, soft-spoken Chicago detective, Wayne Dobby, inadvertently saves the life of a local gangster, Frank Milo, he's the reluctant recipient of an unusual one-week thank you gift, a beautiful bartender. I'll say a Bronx tale. No, that's wrong. It was called Mad Dog and Glory. Oh, jeez. The bartender's name was Glory, and the Chicago detective was known as Mad Dog. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Ellen Barkin. There are two answers for this. Mm-hmm. Do you know either one of them? Ellen Barkin. She was just recently in a thing that I watched with uh, my wife, Animal Kingdom. Hadn't seen her in years, but uh, I don't know what uh, De Niro did with her in the 90s. I don't know. All right. I think the first one's a little tougher than the second mm-hmm. one. So the first one was in 1993. Uh-huh. The description is the story about the relationship between a rebellious 1950s teenager and his abusive stepfather based on the memoirs and writer and liter- literary professor Tobias Wolf. Mm, don't know. Okay, it was called This Boy's Life. Mm. That, was, that was a tough one. Okay, this one I think you got a better chance at. All right. Ellen Barkin again. Yep. 1996 this time. 1996. Okay. Okay. An all-star baseball player becomes the unhealthy focus of a down-on-his-luck salesman. Oh, I know. That just was the fan. This yes. Was when, yeah. He, yeah. Okay. Wesley Snipes was the baseball player. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Ellen Barkin was in that. I remember I saw yeah. that movie once. Yeah. Okay. I and, and a very young Javier Bardem is in it, too. Oh. Or not Javier Bardem. Uh, Benicio Del Toro. Oh, I don't remember him, but okay. Yeah. All right. Helena Bonham Carter. Copland? Nope. It was from 1994. Okay. And this will totally give it away. When a brilliant but unorthodox scientist rejects the artificial man that he has created, the creature escapes and later swears revenge. Oh, he was in a remake of, uh, was it Frankenstein? Yes, Mary yeah, Shelley's I, Frankenstein. Yeah. Yes. I never Frankenstein saw it. Kenneth, but, yeah. yeah, I never saw that, but I, I like Frankenstein, so I remember hearing about it. Okay. Okay. Next these, one. This is a hard. super easy one. Okay. From the 90s. Mm-hmm. Sharon Stone. Oh, uh, I know this. It's Casino. Yes. Yes, it is. I need to get that one. Oh, I got an easy one. Yeah. All right. This one I think is easy too, but I honestly don't know if you've seen this movie. Ashley Judd. No. I don't think I know. Okay. From 1995, a group of professional bank robbers start to feel the heat from police when they unknowingly leave a clue at their latest heist. Don't know. It's heat. Oh, I've never seen that. It wasn't that. Okay. Well, we're going to write that down and we're going to do that one in an upcoming episode then. Wasn't wasn't that like it was well known because it was him and Pacino or something that did that? Yeah. I I never saw it. I remember hearing about that, but I never watched it. It's another really long one though. Okay. This one's a tough one. Mini Driver. Mini Driver? Yes. Oh, God. I have no idea. 
I don't think you'll know this one. This is a huge cast from 1996. Okay. After a prank goes disastrously wrong, a group of boys are sent to a detention center where they are brutalized. 13 years later, an unexpected random encounter with a former guard gives them a chance for revenge. No idea. It was called Sleepers. Oh, and it had Brad Pitt and Dustin Hoffman oh and Jason Patrick. It a huge cast. He has done a. You're right. He's done a lot of movies in the '90s that nobody's ever heard of, or at yep. least not me. <laughs> All right, Janine Garofalo. I'll, I'll give you a hint. You've already I hint. guessed. I have no idea. You've already guessed this movie as one of the other answers that was wrong. Was it Copland? It was Copland. Oh. Good one. Okay, here. This, I never saw that, but I remember because Stallone put on a lot of weight for that role. He did indeed. And it was yeah. kind of famous, but it was a bomb. It was supposed to be dumb. Yeah, it wasn't great. I saw it not too long ago again. Yeah. It, it was just okay. All right, here's a nice super <laughs> duper, super easy one. Oh, and if you don't one. get this one, then right. we're not friends anymore. Pam Greer. Oh, Jackie Brown. There you go. Jackie Brown from 1997. Love okay. the scene with De Niro and uh, Bridget Fonda. Oh, it's so yeah. funny. Yeah. All right. Here, this was a little tougher, but we did just talk about this movie on a recent podcast. Anne Hesh. Or Anne Hesh. I think it's Anne Hesh. Oh, that was, um, oh, oh. Um, I saw this movie and I hated it. Was it Wag the Dog? It was Wag the Dog. Yes. You didn't I like s- that one? No, I didn't like that movie at all. I just rewatched that one, too. Yeah. It was pretty good. No, I didn't all right, like it. This I remember I that, you, though. I remember that this movie. This one yeah. I know you have not seen, but again, mm-hmm. we talked about it not too long ago because I just watched it not too long ago. Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't know. From 1998, Mm -hmm. modernization of a classic story finds the hapless Finn as a painter in New York City pursuing his unrequited and haughty childhood love. I don't know. Great expectations. Oh, jeez. Which I think we talked. I still have it on my PVR. Uh, It's uh, it's a good one. I don't know. All right. Don't know. Friends star Lisa Kudrow. Oh, my God. Goodness, I, I I'll bet you've actually seen this movie. You think so? I, think I so. don't remember seeing her in very many movies. So all right, from nineteen ninety nine, a comedy about a psychiatrist whose number one patient is an insecure mob boss. Is it analyze that? It is analyze this. I'll give it to you. Oh, analyze, I get, okay. analyze this. I haven't seen it, but I've heard of that. And Billy Crystal as Billy the, Crystal, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can well, see their good. faces on the movie poster, but I yeah. never watched it. All right. I didn't know Lisa uh, Kudrow was in it because I didn't watch it. So, all right. I've heard of it. Uh, last one on my list is from yes. the year the year 2000. Okay. Blythe Danner. Uh, was that Meet the Parents? Yes. All right. Very <laughs> <laughs> <It was> strong. <laughs> nice. It was just a guess. I was pretty sure on that one. I haven't seen it. I've seen parts of it. So, I don't know. All right. Yeah, that was tough. I knew it would be tough. You got a lot of them. You got I get a fair amount. I mean, some of them I think I knew mm. were going to be pretty easy. Like, right. Pam Greer, I thought was a pretty much a gimme. Yeah. yeah. But, I, li- uh, I like yeah. I, I, you know, It's funny we were talking about directors, and when we were talking about Scorsese, I thought, is there any director out there who's. Because you mentioned, you said, Scorsese I like, but I don't like all of his films. And I thought, is there any directors that I can think of? that I like all their films. And the only one I could think of was Tarantino. Yeah, that's that's a good pick. I'm like, not I don't, I don't think there's one of his films that I like hated. You know, like I I've liked them all. Some I like more than others. But yeah. Yeah, yeah I think I like all of his Spielberg films. Has a few bombs on his list where oh, you're yeah. like, mm, 
1941 and always and you know yeah spielberg's had a couple of bad ones i mean he's had some fantastic ones don't get me wrong best director that ever lived you know yeah for sure all right that you did you did pretty well all things considered Uh, i knew that was a little outside your comfort zone but definitely uh, it certainly uh, emphasized the uh, the prolific nature of robert de niro and that he has done a ton of stuff and continues continued through the 90s and 2000s i like that as he got a little older and towards the mid to late nineties, he sort of changed his image. He went from more of that mobster tough guy to more of the, the dad or the granddad. And like things like Mm -hmm. meet the parents where he leaned into the humor side of it. And I think that was a good, I think that was a good decision Mm -hmm. for him. It got him like a different kind of audience because he started to play a different kind of role. And And um, he can't play that same role when you're older. So so it was, it was smart. I remember I went to the theater with my wife, a couple of years back and we saw a movie called Silver Linings Playbook and yeah, with my it, boyfriend Bradley Cooper yeah it was pretty flawed I mean there was I thought the I thought Bradley Cooper and um, Jennifer Lawrence were totally miscast in it because they were just they were too good looking for, for that for the parts yeah but um, De Niro was really good he was a standout in that he was very different and and I liked him a lot so yeah I think you're right he's a, he's sort of adapted you know his career so yeah Oh, all, all right. good. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we will be back next week with a topic, you know, with a top five list. But until then, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying, thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs>